are listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. Hey, welcome back. As always, this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, Season 2, Episode 4, and we are still your hosts, Bill Winter. Hello. And I'm Donovan Riley. This week, again, we dive back into Inazo Natobe's Bushido, the soul of Japan. We're talking about honor, which is chapter eight in my edition. And in the Tuttle, it is chapter eight. Eight. Hey, sweet. <laughs> Same chapter, different page numbers. Mm-hmm. There we go. And as always, again, we will begin with Stephen Pressfield, The Warrior Ethos, page 77. Meditation number 24, Purity of the Weapon. The civilian sometimes misconstrues the warrior code, takes it to be one of simple brutality. Overpower the enemy, show no mercy, win at all costs. But the warrior ethos commands that brute aggression be tempered by self-restraint, guided by moral principle. Soldiers of the Israeli Defense Forces, who often must fight against enemies who target civilians, who strike from or stockpile weapons within houses of worship, and who employ their own women and children as human shields, are taught to act according to a principle called Tohar Hanashech, purity of the weapon. This derives from two verses in the Old Testament. What it means is that the individual soldier must reckon himself what is the moral use of his weapon and what is the immoral use. When an action is unjust, the warrior must not take it. Alexander and his campaigns always looked beyond the immediate clash to the prospect of making today's foe into tomorrow's ally. After conquering an enemy in the field, his first act was to honor the courage and sacrifice of his antagonists and to offer the vanquished warrior a place of honor within his own corps. By the time Alexander reached India, his army had more fighters from the ranks of his former enemies than from those of his own Greeks and Macedonians. Cyrus of Persia believed that the spoils of his victories were meant for one purpose, so that he could surpass his enemies in generosity. Quote, I contend against my foes in this area only, the capacity to be of greater service to them than they are to me. Alexander operated by the same principle. Quote, Let us conduct ourselves so that all men wish to be our friends and all fear to be our enemies. The capacity for empathy and self-restraint will serve us powerfully, not only in our external wars, but in the conflicts within our own hearts. Stephen Pressfield, The Warrior Ethos, Purity of the Weapon. Something I want to hit upon this morning (laughs) as we record this is this matter of what it means that the individual soldier must reckon himself. What is the moral use of his weapon and what is the immoral use? The reason I want to hit on this is in another one of my readings, a book, entitled The Inner Citadel, which is an examination of Marcus Aurelius, and then more broadly speaking, uh, Stoicism as a philosophy or philosophical um, principle. And Pierre Hadot, I think, is the author's name. And if you've read The Obstacles of the Way by Ryan Holiday, and you really want to get deeper into the subject, I, I definitely recommend The Inner Citadel. It's a good book. It's readable. He does a great job, Hadot does, of walking you through step-by-step not just the teachings of Marcus Aurelius, but the influence of Epictetus and Asunius Rufus and others on uh, Marcus, but also then just the roots of Stoic philosophy within the broader kind of um, spectrum of Platonic philosophy, Aristotelian philosophy, cynicism, and so forth. But one of the things I want to highlight then in relation to this, this kind of inner dialogue that takes place in the individual soldier about the, the moral or immoral use of his weapon is, and I don't want to get too nerdy and deep in the weeds on this, but essentially what, what the Stoics do is they break down what's happening kind of inside of us into three parts. There's judgment, action, and desire, otherwise known as logic, physics, and ethics. But really what they're talking about is judgment and then acting on that judgment and then the desires or the cravings 
that come out of that judgment and then how our actions, how we pursue those things or don't in, in our behavior. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important though, then without getting, as I said, too deep in the weeds on this, that for the Stoics, morality is actually an internal dialogue. And what I mean by that is when I observe something, whether it's a person, whether it's a thing, an event, whether I'm, I'm talking with you in this podcast, whether I'm seeing something happening in the street in front of me, whatever it might be, as soon as I see it, I begin to judge it. And I, and again, this is unique to the Stoics, is that for the Stoic good, moral good and moral evil, both reside within the choices of the individual. And so whether one is morally good or morally evil, it comes out of this judgment and the action and the desires. So that what ends up happening then is when I judge this conversation, I make a moral judgment about whether it's a good conversation or a bad conversation. And then depending on my judgment of this conversation, I will either act in such a way that I continue the conversation, contribute to the conversation, want to improve the conversation, make it good and better, or I judge this is a bad conversation and therefore I remove myself from the conversation. Why? Well, this comes to the matter of then the desire. Do I crave to continue the conversation? Do I desire the further conversation? Or do I, am I averse to the conversation? And do I want to avoid the conversation? So that all of this is a dialogue that's happening before the conversation, during the conversation, and after the conversation. In fact, we can't not judge. So for those who post on social media, only God can judge me, that's an actual judgment. And you are judging yourself, and by posting it publicly on social media, you're also stating to others that you are judging yourself, and you are actually, whether you are aware or not, inviting them to judge your statement on judgment. Mm-hmm. There is no such thing as a person who is not judging other people 24-7. Mm-hmm. So essentially then, let's say I, again, I judge this conversation to be good. Well, that's, a, that's an inner dialogue that I'm having with myself. I'm having a conversation with myself. And I'm also having a conversation with Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus and Stephen Pressfield and Inazo Natobe and so forth and so on. All of those voices, which I have judged to be good and helpful, have formed my judgment of you in this conversation in the present tense. And therefore, I judge it to be good. And therefore, I act upon that, as I said, to help you then hopefully become better. And through that, both of us become good, morally good, morally better people. And then hopefully then those that listen to this become good and better, and therefore they spread that. And all this is around desires. Now, the opposite could be also equally true. For example, a friend of ours was talking about how she can't quit sugar. She can't give up sugar. Mm -hmm. So she gives it up for a couple of weeks and then something happens and she eats some candy and then she eats more candy and then the bag is gone. Now, the problem is, even though she's decided not to eat sugar, the judgment that she's made about sugar is, it's not that bad. Mm -hmm. So therefore, she is only holding off on the action that will come from that judgment, which is she's going to eat the sugar because she has concluded it's really not that bad, but I'm going to quit doing it. I'm going to quit eating sugar because others have told me it's bad for my health. It's not good for my body. But I myself, in that inner dialogue, have determined it's not as bad as others tell me. In fact, here comes the desire part. I actually like eating sugary things. I crave sugary things. It tastes good. So therefore, how could it really be bad? So you make the judgment that sugary foods aren't that bad, and therefore you act contrary to your judgment. Your cravings overwhelm you, and you give in to those cravings. So for a Stoic, that would be considered a morally evil action because you're acting contrary to good judgment. And ultimately, you're also lying to yourself about how you've judged that sugary treat or whatever. So therefore, when it comes then to the soldier and what Pressfield highlights here, the inner dialogue of the individual soldier is I'm making a judgment. In this case, here is a person, an enemy fighter someone who is opposed to me. And he is targeting civilian populations. He stockpiles weapons in houses of worship, and he uses his own women and children as human shields. So therefore, I make a judgment about this person. 
based on their behavior, based on their actions, which is, I believe this person, I'm convinced this person is morally evil. Therefore, being a morally good person, what actions must I then take against this morally evil person to prevent this person in front of me, this woman, this child, the people in this house of worship, the civilian population, from being negatively affected by this evil person? This is all an inner dialogue. This isn't just stuff that's floating around out there waiting for us to get a hold of it. And I think that's an important you know, distinction, at least for myself and what I'm, you know, what I'm thinking through this morning. It's important for me because that means then that we're not just these mindless machines or these puppets just wandering around making decisions that we, we do this because we have no choice and then we do that because we have, you know, and all these forces and these people that are out of our control are essentially forcing us to make decisions that we don't want to make. When ultimately, as Viktor Frankl points out in Man's Search for Meaning, if you take away all of my physical freedom, you restrict me to the extent that I can't even choose when to eat, when to go to the bathroom, where I'm going to sleep, what I'm going to do when I get up in the morning, what I'm going to do when I go to bed at night. At the end of the day, you take all that away. And POWs talk about this all the time too, from every war when they write about it. You can't take away my freedom of conscience. You can't take away my freedom to think. You can't take away my freedom to make judgments. And therefore, ultimately, even in the midst of the most horrible situations, you can still be a morally good person. So long as you take responsibility, you take ownership for your own thoughts, your own judgments, and how you judge external circumstances. But recognizing when I decide someone is good, or I decide someone is evil, that's a judgment. That a person is neither good nor evil until they speak or act in such a way that contradicts what is morally good. And that this then dynamic is always at play within us. And it's a matter for the Stoics of having that dialogue, developing that dialogue, developing the habit of having that dialogue with yourself, which will lead then to living a philosophical life, which ultimate gain being to live a good life. Be a good person, help your neighbor. And the key word there is training or developing. Yeah. I find that oftentimes there's this idea that cause and effect does not exist. Development does not exist. People are who they are, period, end of discussion, and that is unchangeable. Right. Which is interesting, before you go too much further, too, mm-hmm. to iterate too, for the Stoics, one of the base principles for the Stoics is that the universe is always in movement. Mm-hmm. Change is constant. Therefore, for them, a person, again, could be cons- is considered morally evil who holds to that maxim or that principle of this is just the way it is. Their response is, yeah, right now, but then, oh, no, not anymore. Yep. Well, this comes back to uh, the idea from the same time period, you can't cross the same river twice. Right. Um, in other words, you, you cross at point A. If you turn around immediately and cross back, same point, you're not crossing through the same water Mm -hmm. because of this constant change, this constant motion. Well, and this is another point too, uh, last thought for me on this so that I don't put everybody to sleep is (laughs) the Stoics refer to these as disciplines of virtue. So it's Mm -hmm. the discipline of the virtue of judgment and the discipline of the virtue of action and the discipline of the virtue of desire or aversion. These are Mm -hmm. disciplines. These are habits. And as we say, discipline equals freedom. Yep. So the more you practice and develop these habits of having this inner dialogue with yourself, and then you can go have this dialogue with other people, the discipline will grow and become stronger and you will find yourself a freer man. In fact, the good man is the truly free man, whereas the morally evil man is enslaved to himself. He's a slave to himself because he's a slave to his own desires because he doesn't recognize the difference between a a good and useful desire and a destructive desire. Mm -hmm. Well, and this this comes back to the discussion of the passions, uh, which we had, I don't know, at some point. Mm Um, but those things which differentiate us from animals. Right, right, right. Our 
ability to make judgments is uh, really at the heart of that. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's not judgments in a narrow sense. That is to say, it's not always this or that person or this or that situation is good or bad. Judgments are actually being made at all times. Correct. So I am hungry. I judge that I need to eat. Right. Well, and again, that's a good point too, is I think typically the word that we replace that judgment with is decision. I decided to eat. I decided to get out of bed. Mm -hmm. You judged. You made a judgment. Yeah. Is it good to get out of bed? Well, I suppose I got to go to work or I got to make breakfast for myself or the kids are awake and I got to take care of things. These are judgments. Mm-hmm. And again, I just, I, I was reading that. I read it like three times in a row this morning because it was such a helpful description by Hedo about this is if we can really break it down into these three basic disciplines, as, this, as the Stoics refer to it, as Epictetus names them. Now all of a sudden, instead of, like Plato says that you have a soul, and that's your higher self. And the soul pretty much makes all the decisions for the body. Our bodies are basically just like a, a meat suit for the soul. It's a vehicle that we drive around. The Stoics rejected that outright. But if you'll notice, almost all of Western civilization is based on that's, that Platonic teaching of the body and the soul. There's mm-hmm. two parts. And then Aristotle throws in the whole, you know, moving from potentiality to actuality. I start yeah. off as an acorn, and hopefully I grow into a mighty oak. And the Stoics went, yeah, no. In nope. fact, all of what you're talking about is really one whole thing. Mm-hmm. It's judgment, action, and desires are what essentially the soul or the consciousness, as we would call it in the present tense, the self, as Marcus Aurelius refers to it, Marcus Aurelius refers to it, is really what we're talking about is what makes me, me. If you strip everything else away, what makes me, me? Judgment, action, and desires. Mm-hmm. And that's a whole, that's not like, and as they point out, when you, when you think about it, think about them as a whole and how they function as a whole. But when you teach them, teach them each separately. So that to spare people confusion, especially students, right? And <laughs> because yeah, judgment, action, desire, what's the difference between desire and behavior and so forth and so on. It can get very confusing if you're not grounded in the language. Mm-hmm. But I think it is a very, again, for myself, it's a very useful tool because it helps me then formulate for myself, why am I doing this? Or why do I want this? Or why am I preoccupied with this? Mm -hmm. Rather than focus on the object, focus on the motive. Mm -hmm. Then you'll know the, the intent. It's like I used to go shopping to make myself feel better when I was down or depressed. Mm hmm get that endorphin kick, right? Yeah. And the problem is I'm an obsessive personality. I have an addictive personality. Literally, I'm an alcoholic. So the problem is once I start playing guitar again, I don't just get a guitar. I become obsessed with collecting guitars, Mm -hmm. building guitars and playing guitars and so forth and so on until I'm not anymore. And then I'm on to the next thing. And you never stop to judge in those moments, why do I desire to play guitar? Why do I desire to have so many guitars? Why do I desire to obsess about this thing? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? Well, does it take away from your ability to pay bills? Is it distracting you from your other responsibilities, et cetera, et cetera? You know, does it contribute to you being a better person and so forth and so on? And again, we're so obsessed with material things in the present tense and place so much value and even place our own identity in material wants and yeah. in, in what we can acquire for ourselves. We often forget that that is contrary to the pre-modern understanding of the path of enlightenment or the path of knowledge. That all those material things get in the way of us actually having that inner dialogue with ourselves. Because we're so obsessed on the next thing that we can't stop long enough to ask, well, why do I want that thing in the first place? Mm-hmm. And if I do know why I want that thing, does that then reveal to me my own selfishness, the absurdity of this pursuit, the, the shallow childishness of this desire, or does it reveal something about myself that I, do, I need to nurture and cultivate? Hard questions all. <laughs> I'm coming at Bill with a fire hose this morning. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good stuff. Painful questions all. Um, and I think that's the point. My wife and I were just talking about this, in, again, in relation to her, a friend of hers with, who's struggling with this, the sugar impulse, the compulsion to, to eat sugar. Yeah. Is at the, you know, she 
wanted to be very binary, A plus B equals C kind of um, thinking about this, that we're disciplined and she's not. And it's like, well, but if you really dig down, eventually you get to the point that the books we've read, the podcasts we listen to, the people that we associate with, all of those things have contributed to this conversation that we're having about your friend. And without this, all these other people and just being there and being there and reading this book and hearing this person on this podcast, which turned us on to this thing, we're not having this conversation. So it's not as simple as A plus B equals C, at least in the big picture. A lot had to happen and a lot of failure and a lot of lack of self-awareness and self-reflection had to take place before we got to a, you know, a point where we could say, hey, maybe the problem is us. Mm-hmm. Maybe we need to take a step back and really take a big bite out of why we do what we do as individuals, as a couple, as a family and so forth. And again, not worry about what's happening around us that's out of our control, but rather what's going on inside of us that isn't within our control to a certain extent. Yeah. And I think at the root too is a, a general, at least for myself, it's a general curiosity. And like the principle of Shoshin, the, the Zen principle of Shoshin of always learning, always a student, is I'm such a curious person by nature. I never cease being interested in learning new things about myself, about other people, topics, and so forth and so on. So maybe that's a part of it too, is that to really become an educated person or a philosopher in the stoic sense, that is not writing books about philosophy, but actually living the philosophy that you imbibe. You have to be curious and not just curious in in the sense of, I hope this makes me feel good, but curious in the sense of, well, let's just go into these dark caves and see what's down there, confronting your fears in a certain sense, or maybe more directly. Mm -hmm. You know? But again, and as with those questions, that's a difficult thing and an often painful thing. Hence why it's often better uh, avoided in uh, uh, just generally speaking. Mm -hmm. Uh, I said, um, and then (laughs) you froze mentally. Yeah, I did. This is what having that sticky note on the laptop does. Uh, <laughs> well, you get, well, you, well, you get past the ums. Let's dive into chapter eight on honor then, since this plays into what we're, we're talking about anyways. Mm-hmm. So Natobi writes in chapter eight on honor, the sense of honor implying a vivid consciousness of personal dignity and worth could not fail to characterize the samurai born and bred to value the duties and privileges of their profession. Through the word, although the word ordinarily given nowadays as the translation of honor was not used freely, yet the idea was conveyed by such terms as na, meaning name, men moku, countenance, guai bun, outside hearing, reminding us respectively of the biblical use of the word name, the evolution of the term personality from the Greek word mask, and of quote-unquote fame. A good name one's reputation, the immortal part of one's self, what remains being bestial. Assumed as a matter of course, any infringement upon its integrity was felt as shame. And the sense of shame, renchi shin, was one of the earliest to be cherished in juvenile education. Quote, you will be laughed at. It will disgrace you. Are you not ashamed? were the last appeal to correct behavior on the part of a youthful delinquent. Such a recourse to his honor touched the most sensitive spot in the child's heart, as though it had not, although as though it had been nursed on honor while he was in his mother's womb. For most truly is honor a prenatal influence being closely bound up with strong family consciousness. In losing the solidarity of family, says Balzac, Society has lost the fundamental force, which Montesquieu named honor. Indeed, the sense of shame seems to me to be the earliest indication of the moral consciousness of the race. The first and worst punishment which befell humanity in consequence of tasting, quote, the fruit of that forbidden tree, unquote, was to my mind not the sorrow of childbirth, nor the thorns and thistles, but the awakening of the sense of shame. He says so much in such a short space of time. It's amazing. Oh, yeah, he's a very dense writer. So we but I think all... this is, goes to the point, as he noted, 
shame now, as we've been discussing since Cyrus, and when we read about Cyrus the Great, Mm -hmm. that shame can be used positively. Mm -hmm. Also shame then within the moral consciousness of an individual, a culture, and a race. But Toby points out that he would even place it as a prenatal condition. That is, if your parents are immoral, how then can you be raised from childbirth in this ethic, this discipline of honor? Mm-hmm. How can one be moral if one's parents or culture are immoral? Well, and that brings up a good point. One of the interesting things that I came across uh, recently uh, regarding studies of unborn children was that they recognize their native language, the language of their mother uh, and the father, if he's present in the womb. Sure. And it's not just that they recognize, say, the distinction between English and Japanese, mm-hmm. but with distinctions of languages come the way that the brain actually functions. Mm. That is to say, while human nature is human nature, regardless of time and space, the way that the human brain gets from point A, human nature, to Mm. B, actions, will and does vary depending upon the native language. Sure. So the way that a native English speaker like myself thinks is inherently different than the way a native, uh, say, German speaker thinks, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. So what Natobe is observing here is fascinating, and it's yeah. something that we find uh, in the philosophers throughout history. Up that is this the last hundred years or so. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Once That's enlightenment. <laughs> once we, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a whole nother discussion. That's a whole um, uh, that's a whole other podcast. Yeah, the things we lost. <laughs> right, the things we lost in the fire. Yeah, that actually may be a good season at some point. But something that philosophers have observed for centuries is that good and bad, so on and so forth, comes and begins in the womb. Mm-hmm. So to come back to our point of, in this case, in a feudal Japanese society, honor being inculcated from the womb mm-hmm. is not just a flowery, pretty idea, but it's actually true. Right. And we find this even today. We're mm-hmm. able to do the uh, scientific testing required to confirm this, what, what would be a hypothesis. But what we find is that it has always existed. Right. It's carried in the language. So an example, when we speak to uh, people from the World War II generation, you know, before the baby boomers, or even the tiny handful of them from before that, um, most of them are dead. One thing they observe about daily interaction today that differs from when they were young is the lack of honorifics, say the usage of sir and ma'am or Mm -hmm. Mr. Mrs. and so forth. It was not common even in America to refer to someone by their first name if you were not family or exceedingly close friends. Right. Because yeah. all of these things were tied up in, in, um, yeah, in the usage of honorifics. Right. You see this cultural shift uh, in my parents' generation, the, the Vietnam generation, of yeah. calling their parents by their first name as an act of rebellion, mm-hmm. which persists to this day. And you're right, is that, you know, if we, we use Balzac here in Montesquieu to, as a jumping off point, in losing the solidarity of families, society has lost the fundamental force, which Montesquieu named honor. Exactly. Essentially what Balzac is saying here, and again, this is Balzac, you can disagree or or agree, and sadly we politicize this point, which is certainly added baggage to it that is, I would argue, unnecessary for the conversation. Mm -hmm. 
what Balzac is arguing then, which technically enlightened philosopher, is that when the family disintegrates, then society disintegrates because the society is built on the family. Mm -hmm. uh, where, do, where do people come from? Where do citizens come from? So that society then loses its fundamental force, which is honor, to your point. Yep. And so, yeah, we can listen to the older generations lament the loss of honor, um, general, you know, overall propriety, civility, these kinds of things. But when you see videos online of New York City police officers being doused with water and people spitting on them and cursing them and they're not allowed to react yeah. because they're afraid of the public outcry yeah. against them. When I was growing up, I didn't know a lot about New York City, but I knew a lot from movies about New York City cops. Mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly that would not have stood no in, in no, when i was a little boy and maybe i'm just becoming one of those grumpy old gran torino type of characters <laughs> but the first and worst punishment which befell humanity in consequence of tasting the fruit of that forbidden tree was to my mind not the sorrow of childbirth not the thorns or thistles the awakening of the sense of shame they ate they looked at each other and they knew that they were that naked, they were naked. Yep. and they were ashamed mm -hmm. with the, the loss of honor, which again for Balzac is the loss of the family, which I would argue in the present tense is definitely a, a crisis. I guess you could call it a crisis. If you look at the demographics and the data, mm -hmm. especially in certain areas. Uh, but I would say even in rural areas, it's reaching the point where it's almost as bad as in urban areas. Oh yeah. Family structure is, has disintegrated. Yep. that what have you lost? Well, you've lost that sense of honor then because you don't honor your parents. Why? Well, are they honorable? Yeah, it doesn't matter. Of your respect? Are they worthy to be cherished? Well, that depends. Again, are they, do they raise you and teach you what honor is? Do they embody that honor? Again, mm -hmm. do they talk about philosophy or do they actually live philosophically? Do they mm -hmm. talk about morality or do they live morally? Do they talk about honor or do they live in such a way that you respect them and you want to honor them? Mm -hmm. Without that, then shame goes out the window. Yeah. Because honor and shame are tied together at the hip. Because otherwise, if there's no honor, if there's no respect, then you can't lose that respect. Therefore, there is no shame. Mm -hmm. Like we've talked about before, whether it's in training, you know, again, I competed in my first uh, tournament last Sunday and I competed against, I actually called out the person that I wanted to fight and half my age, stronger than I was, faster than I was, a brown belt, I'm a blue belt. On paper, I have 0% chances of winning this fight. And I actually almost took it to overtime. I lasted eight out of a 10 minute round. Nice. Because I took away one of his most important weapons, which were his hips. Now, I controlled his hips. I helped him in my guard for eight minutes. And then I decided, you know what, I could, I could stall and go to overtime with this. But I consider that a coward's way out of this fight. Mm -hmm. So I took my shot. We, we scrambled. I swept him. I was tired. And I did the right thing, but I did it at the wrong time. And he caught me and he triangle choked me and I tapped. Now, yeah. in that moment... He gets up and I'm just readjusting from going from 10 to going back to six emotionally. <laughs> and he picks me up and he hugs me and, and I go and I sit down and he comes over and he sits by me and he tells me all the things that I did right and how much he respected what I did and my game plan and everything else. And then all of a sudden, even though I lost, all of my other teammates came up to me and sat next to me and told me how intelligent my game plan was and how impressed they were with what I did. And they showed me honor. Because they, mm -hmm. they said to me, you're worthy of our respect. And here's how we're going to show you that. Mm -hmm. So what was really interesting then uh, is that the person who won our tournament does not have the respect of our teammates because of the way he behaves. Hmm. He won and we all went up and, thanked and congratulated him and said, hey, you know what? That's what hard work gets you. But the honor that was shown to him, the respect that was shown to him was perfunctory. Mm. It was to be cordial. It was to support our teammate. Yeah. It was shown to me and it was reinforced by others who came up to me afterwards and said it to me to point out, Hey, I hope you're aware of the fact that 
like we all respect you incredibly for number one, calling out the guy that none of us wanted to face. Mm-hmm. Nobody wanted to fight this guy. And you actually called him out a month before the tournament. I didn't really call him out. I just asked for the fight. I think it's yeah. disrespectful to call out a brown belt. Brown belts call out blue belts. But I just <laughs> asked for the fight. I'm just like, who do I respect the most? You. Mm-hmm. I'm not here to compete for a trophy. I don't care about trophies. I can buy a trophy for eight bucks at the trophy store. I'm here to overcome my fear. Mm-hmm. My competition, my fear of defeat, my fear of failure and so forth. My fear of failing in front of my teammates. And by the way, fear of failing in front of my students. And so for me, the victory was not to be posterized and lose in five seconds. Mm-hmm. So I called out the person I respect the most, the person I consider it a privilege to fight against, the person who, when he beats me, I'm going to say thank you because I learned a lot. But most importantly, I overcame fear and you helped me overcome that fear. And I told yeah. him that Saturday, the day before the tournament. And so for me, regardless of whether I receive back that honor and respect from my teammates, from my students, from my instructors and so forth, what matters is that I faced my fear and I overcame it. And then the feedback I got from that reinforced again, your decision to do this was good to us. Mm -hmm. And now your reputation and your, our sense of respect for you has grown exponentially. Yeah. Which of course then does what? Motivates me to want to face the next fear. And that's coming up in 17 days. Yeah, exactly. Um, It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Exactly. But at the, but hand in hand then is shame. That is, I don't want to let myself down because I consider that disrespectful to me. This goes to the point of honor, but also to the point of the value that Pressfield talks about, or here that one has to assess one's value and worth, which is dignity. That what is, what is my sense of dignity? Therefore, what is my value? What is my sense of worth? And then how do I conduct and carry myself in relation to other people that I communicate that? Not arrogantly, not saying I'm above you, not being condescending, but simply saying, this is who I think I am. And now I have to go out and prove it to myself and therefore to you. And if I'm wrong, you're going to come and correct me and say, hey, you know what? That was a really dumb thing to do. And here's why I think so. And if you can surround yourself with people who will be honest with you and tell you the truth and say, you know what, that was like, I have so much respect for you. You did. You shocked me with what you just did. Or, Hey, you know what? I don't think that maybe was the best way to do that. And here's why I think this, mm-hmm. it is a sense of, Oh, I've let you down or I've let myself down or I need to take a step back and really dig in and be critical and say, what did I do that? It's like, if I had been, tapped by that brown belt. And then I just, I jumped to my feet and I just started stomping the ground and screaming and yelling and, you know, saying, Hey, this, you know, you're this, and I can't believe you did that. <laughs> right. That would be dishonorable. Mm. And the proof would be everyone around me would be ashamed of my behavior. They'd be embarrassed for me. Yep. Versus no, not only did you conduct yourself with honor and dignity and integrity leading up to the fight, but in the fight itself, you did it. And then after the fight, you did it too. Mm-hmm. That's my point is that the awakening of that sense of shame comes with the awakening of that sense of honor and self-respect and dignity and integrity. Mm -hmm. Well, to take it a little bit further though, what is your team fundamentally according to Balzac's definition here? They're my family. It's a, exactly. It's a family. Right. So to, to bring it back again to that point of, it's just the way it is. Nothing can change. That's not true. Even if you were raised in an environment where honor was not modeled, right. it is still possible to learn it for yourself mm-hmm. and to build your own family. Right. And 100%, because as I've talked about on this show too, I did not grow up in a family where honor was on display. Mm-hmm. I didn't grow up in a family that respected the rules or the rule of law. Morality was, as I've said, a, a weather vane. So I grew up to be an immoral person, pathological liar, a thief, and so forth and so on. So then how do I learn honor? From others. Mm-hmm. And you look at others and go, hey, I want that. Yep. Well, how do I get that? Well, where you, from where you're at right now, you're at about negative eight. So we got to get you back to zero, first of all. And here's the things you got to do. You got to get sober. You got to be responsible for your finances. You got to put your house in order. You got to make your bed. Basic stuff. Mm-hmm. Once you get develop the habit of, and the discipline of making your bed, paying your bills, taking care of yourself, then maybe you can have a relationship with other people. 
that's not based on self-destruction. Yep. And then from that, maybe you can start listening to other people and putting into practice the things that you respect about what they're saying and develop these habits, these disciplines. And then all of a sudden you start looking at yourself in the mirror and going, I don't know how it happened, but I think I'm a moral person. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm the guy that my 23-year-old self would hate. <laughs> yep. Yep. Well, the thing we do not want to miss here is as much as it is proper to point out and even lament the destruction in the West of mm -hmm. family, the fact remains that we can rebuild this, albeit individually. So one person at a time. Yeah. And whether that family is you and your jiu-jitsu teammates mm -hmm. or you and your coworkers, or you and a, a spouse and children, whatever, right. the point is everywhere you go, you want to be looking for and building that because right. that is how we build up these virtues. Well, think of it. And here's an example that I often use. I go out to eat at a restaurant. Now, at one time I managed a restaurant. So I know what it's like to deal with customers, both on the delivery side of things, but also on the sit down and order side of things and on the bar and the service side of things. So when I go to a restaurant, I go out of my way. I used to, I guess I would just call it normal behavior now, but I show the utmost respect and regard for the person who's serving us all the way back to the kitchen because I want this person to provide me with the best service possible. And I know that being a jerk, being disrespectful and condescending is not the best way to get the best service. <laughs> I also know what the cooks do to your food when you're disrespectful. Mm -hmm. so for those of you listening, all the, the, the car, kind of caricature-ish, cartoonish jokes that run around about what cooks do to your stuff, if you're disrespectful, those are true. Mm -hmm. I witnessed them. If you watch the beginning of Ace Ventura Pet Detective, I've seen pizza delivery drivers do the same thing with people's pizzas. <laughs> but the point being then is that I respect and I have regard, not just for the person because of their work and what they're trying to accomplish by working at this restaurant, but I also want to provide them with the opportunity to enjoy their job and to take pleasure from their job, to, to look at their job and say, this is what I'm doing is worthy of respect. And the way that I prove that to them is by showing them respect. And what ends up happening then as a consequence usually is because you're respectful to them, they then are more inclined to look at you kindly as a person and say, hey, you know what? I really want to serve this table. This guy is awesome. He's, he's kind and he's caring and he seems to understand the situation that's going on in the restaurant right now. And he's respectful to me. Well, now when I go and serve these other tables, because this is my mental attitude, this is my attitude now because I just had this interaction with that guy, guess what? Now I'm going to be more respectful and kind to the other tables I wait on. And even if it's one out of 12 tables, now the people at this table, because of our interaction, because of, of how I interacted with them, now they have a positive experience and they're leaving the restaurant happy. They're going to come back to that restaurant again now because they liked me as, as a waiter or waitress. They liked the way that I delivered their food. It influenced the way that they judged their food, being whether it was good or bad. Mm -hmm. So as they leave now, they're taking that out into the world with them. And all of a sudden, from one person's interaction with another person, I've influenced four people. And those four people influence 20 and 20 influence 100 and so on. Mm -hmm. Likewise, then, if I'm a jerk to my waiter or waitress, it has the inverse consequence. Yeah, exactly. But as you noted over, uh, several times, the world isn't static. And all of our actions have consequences. And we are always judging in the moment how we're going to act on our desires, one way or the other, positive or negative. And all of those judgments have consequences because when we interact with people, we are influencing people. Mm -hmm. And if we just take that serious at the most basic level, perhaps it will change our approach to how we engage each other, whether it's in debate or argument, or whether it's in ordering our food, or as you said, whether it's just how we interact with our spouse and our family or our coworkers, whatever it may be recognize these are habits. This is discipline that we're talking about. And yet at root, honor is how people view us mm -hmm. and whether they show us respect or not. Because the fact of the matter is the restaurants that I go to, because I think out loud anyways, everybody knows my name and everybody knows who I am when I go and, and visit. Because when I find a good restaurant, I want to go back because I want to make sure that that restaurant stays open. 
Mm-hmm. And I develop a relationship with the owner and I develop a relationship with the maitre d' and I develop a relationship with the wait staff. Why? Because I want good service. And I just genuinely want to have a good exchange with this person because I'm getting something back from that. Mm-hmm. As much as they're getting out of it, I'm getting something back from it, which is an opportunity to practice respect, honor, yeah. integrity, dignity, all of these things, morality, being a good moral man. Rather than see our, my interaction with people as a burden, which sometimes it is, let's be honest, and a burden for them to interact with me, which is again, <laughs> true, can happen. That's the point is, why are we here? Mm-hmm. To be good people and to help others. So then the inner dialogue that I talked about at the beginning is just that. The inner dialogue is how can I be a good person and help other people? Mm-hmm. And eliminate everything then that interferes with that. Whether it's people, whether it's situations, whether it's work, whether whatever it is, what are the things that interfere with you being a person worthy of other people's respect? Mm-hmm. Eliminate it. Take yeah. the necessary steps, make the necessary sacrifices, remove the necessary obstacles, and you'll get there. Mm-hmm. You got anything else to add to that? Yeah, well, the importance of the team, the importance of the family, these things mm-hmm. are the ability to be shamed. Uh, as we have pointed out before, shame can be good or it can be bad. It can be good in the sense of it can help push us toward honor. It can help push us toward virtue. Mm-hmm by fear of being shamed. Right. And so the point, the point then of building a family, and in fact, building multiple families, mm-hmm. if you will, is that, uh, as, as Natobe quotes a little bit later, shame is the soil of all virtue, of good yeah. Matter, yeah. of good morals. Right. Yeah. <laughs> building of a good team, the building of a good family is the exposing of yourself to the ability to be shamed. Right. Even if you've completely lost that, Mm -hmm. this rebuilding of it is a good thing because it will help to drive you on. It will make you want to be a better person, a -hmm. better husband or wife or team or whatever. But yeah, it all starts with that inner dialogue, both the inner dialogue of the, of the person, the individual, but to broaden that out, I guess, for our conversation too, the inner dialogue that takes place in the home. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I talk with my wife all the time about these things. Yeah. I have a conversation with my kids as a family, and then I have a conversation in my congregation with people about this and with my teammates. Mm-hmm. Is the dialogue, yeah, it starts with you. It starts with your curiosity. It starts with this question of, why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. What, 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 what do I, what's the goal here? And then it branches out into asking other people. And again, that curiosity exercising itself and the discipline of virtue and the habits of virtue that we can develop through these pursuits. Then, yeah, both the negative sense of shame, those who want to pull us back into that bucket of crabs, Mm. but also then in a positive sense of those who rely on us and depend on us and look to us to actually make good decisions. Mm -hmm is it is possible it's just the uphill path Mm -hmm. it's simple it's just not easy well and individualism hasn't helped us in this regard right not in the kind of modern uh, psychotherapeutic sense precisely oh Um, i was going to say that's really the 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 almost opposite of this conversation would be self-indulgent inner dialogue that mm -hmm. is don't really care about what my family thinks don't really care about society all i care about is making myself a better person Yep. That's self-indulgent. That's selfishness. That's actually morally evil. Yeah. Well, and the, the flip side then of that is, as we keep pointing out, what is the purpose of life? Right. Be a good person. Love your neighbor. Yeah. You can't love your neighbor if you have isolated yourself from them. Right. Uh, you cannot actually improve your honor, your virtue, mm-hmm. if you have isolated yourself from right. society. Right. 
the the idea of becoming a Buddhist monk and sitting up on the mountain somewhere right. is not virtuous. Right. It's selfish. It, very Self much so. Right. Very as much, much as the medieval monk. I, I, yeah, I was just going to say... Um, or the desert yeah. mystics or yep. you name it. Yeah. Yep. Um, the idea of cutting yourself off from those around you in order to pursue your self-improvement or your goals, whatever those may be, right. helps neither your neighbor and right. in the end doesn't help you. Right. And this is a great kind of overlap between theology and philosophy mm -hmm. is that the Stoics and the theologians agree that we were made for each other. Yep. And therefore we have no actual purpose and there is no actual meaning to our life if we are not in relation to others and in unity with others. I'll leave you with uh, one last thought here for myself. And it was one last anecdote. I was uh, scrolling through Instagram yesterday and one of the police officers I follow posted a, an old video of Mr. Rogers uh, sitting with his feet in a, in a kiddie pool. And next to him is a policeman with his feet in the kiddie pool. He's a black policeman. And I grew up watching Mr. Rogers. And the point of this, this episode was at that time that that episode aired, racial tension was pretty, well, tense in this country. And integration was still debated. Uh, there were still plenty of people who were against integration. And here, Mr. Rogers has a black policeman, not only on his TV show, but they're sitting with their feet together in a kiddie pool talking about this point in a way that kids can understand. And I grew up, and this is the point is, I grew up being taught by Mr. Rogers and Sesame Street and the Electric Company and other shows <laughs> that we are basically all the same. That we might have different colored skin, we might have different kinds of hair, we might have different kinds of skills or abilities or strengths, we might have different jobs, but we're all the same at heart. And therefore, if we can learn not to judge based on skin color or job or any of those things, any external things, but as Martin Luther King Jr. said, on the content of a person's character, we'll recognize that we're, we're the same. And this is the stoic point too, is that we're made for each other and that ultimately we are a unity as a group, of, as a society. And in the present tense, we've completely lost that, unfortunately, mm -hmm. to me. So I grew up being taught by children's shows to, again, love your neighbor, get along with your neighbor, be good, help other people, because we're all basically the same. And we're all, we basically all want the same things. Mm -hmm. Versus today, I see what my kids are being taught, which is just divisiveness and disunity. Yep. And our differences, which are almost entirely external material, are overemphasized and exaggerated to the point of absurdity. Mm -hmm. And I lament that we've lost that. If anything, I've lament, I lament that because of my own children. That I grew up being taught, no, we're in this together. You know, what's good for the bee or what's good for the hive is good for the bee. Mm -hmm. Versus nowadays, it's no, whatever's good for the bee must be good for the hive. Well, and if the hive doesn't agree, then they're on the <laughs> wrong side of history. Right, or, exactly. Um, right. Coming back to then uh, that point about individualism, mm -hmm. it has grown out of hand. When the individual becomes the building block of society, society will necessarily fall apart. Right. Why? Because we cannot trust one another. I don't care how good of a society you come from. Sure. There's only so much trust that you can wisely give to a stranger on the street. Right. However, in a society where there's at least uh, a, a, an expectation that the stranger you meet on the street has bound their lives to the family, to the larger society. Right there is a higher level of trust than the one who has bound themselves to looking out for number one. Right. What we find in the former is what you find in, say, a place like modern Japan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
crime rate is almost nothing because of that fact. Right. What we find in the latter is what we find here today. Even when uh, my family and I were living way the heck out in the sticks, like dirt road out mm -hmm. in the sticks, you still lock the gate at night. Right. Still lock the doors. Why? Because of that fact. Because there's no honor. Exactly. And there's no honor because there's none of us can be shamed in right. a general sense anymore. Right. And that's at the root of the statement, there's no honor amongst thieves. Why? Because there's no shame. <laughs> yeah. Well, they've all given up on it. Right. Well, and to bring this full circle, then to wrap it up, this is Pressfield's point. If you are using your own women and children as human shields to defend yourself against an enemy, you have no honor. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you have no dignity. You have no integrity. And therefore, again, you can then judge that person as being morally evil. Mm -hmm. Because the basic fundamental building blocks of what we would call a morally good person are absent. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the consequences may be severe, they may be extreme because of the consequences to the broader family, society, and the world. Yep. But if you only live for yourself, that whole conversation seems, well, just dark and alien. Mm -hmm. Right? It's like, well, that's, that's wrong. We shouldn't be doing that. Okay, we shouldn't. You're right. We shouldn't have to go over there and send our military over there and have them do these things to these people. But those are shoulds. Here's what is. And it's not about you. And it's not about your perspective of the world or about your, your worldview. What it is, is about moral good and moral evil within a very microscopic, granular um, area. This thing right here. This person using these people to do these things to this population. Yep. And if we can just look at that at the granular level and divorce it from the, the stuff that happens behind the, the doors of Congress or the Senate or the White House, right. which is way above my pay grade, and just focus on this person is doing this thing to these people. Now, are we going to allow this to continue if we judge this to be a moral evil? Or are we going to do something about it mm -hmm. and recognize that this is an extreme situation, therefore the response is going to be extreme. Mm -hmm. Because scolding someone who's strapped to a bomb is not going to alleviate the situation. <laughs> Maybe if we send them a very strongly worded letter. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> this is in all caps, just so you know I'm serious. Yeah, right. <laughs> but anyways, I got nothing else on this. Do you? When we discuss honor, when we discuss virtue, all of these things, we need to struggle against and resist the tendency to say, it's just the way I am. It's just the way I was raised, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. 100%. And instead, look at the fact right. that these things begin and end with us ourselves. Right. Yeah. And, and if not me, you will find eventually someone who started not at zero, not someone who fell through the cracks, but someone who started in a negative, mm -hmm. who's on the other side of that, who, whether it's a physical disability or a mental disability or whatever it may be that was essentially put on them, that they were burdened with from a very early age, they still decided, I'm going to climb that mountain. I'm going to swim across that ocean. I'm going to get out of bed and walk. I'm going to feed myself. I'm going to read a book, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. Those people are out there. And we can, again, take inspiration from those people and ask, like, what is that famous meme? Like, how do you, how do, you do this without, like, how are you so happy or grateful when you don't have two feet? Mm -hmm. He responds with, how can you be so ungrateful when you do have two feet? Mm -hmm. It's a matter of perspective. Yep. You either have the perspective of, like you said, well, this is just the way I am, so I guess I just have to wallow in this. Or, like myself anyways, you can wake up one day and go, you know what, I'm sick and tired of this. I want something different, and I'm willing to do what it takes to accomplish that. Yep. And all of a sudden, you're going to find, hey, I actually like myself, or I at least like what I'm doing, and I like the direction it's going. I like the people that I'm involved with. I like this feeling of self-worth and value that I have all of a sudden. I like not being a victim. I like not waiting for other people to do stuff for me. This isn't bad. I like this honor thing. I like shame actually now. 
Shame isn't a bad thing. That's not, I like this. I like integrity. I like the fact that I'm a morally good person now. I like the yeah. consequences. It's not so bad after all. Well, and that is the freedom that comes from discipline. 100%. The victim is a slave and will always be a slave. Yes. The disciplined one cannot be enslaved. Never. Regardless of the circumstances. Right. That's a perfect, that, that is a perfect ending. I like that. All right, folks, thank you as always for your time and attention. We truly appreciate it and we know how valuable it is to you. So we hope that in our conversation, we don't waste it. And we hope that you are helped by the podcast. If you are, please go and leave us a positive review at um, Apple Podcasts. Share this with your friends and family. Recommend us. Uh, tag me on Instagram. You can go to the Warrior Priest Podcast on all social media platforms, including Twitch. And uh, if there's anybody you want us to read or anything that you want us to cover topic-wise, just shoot us a text and DM me on Instagram. Shoot us a Facebook message, whatever it might be, and we'll try and answer your question. All right. As always, thank you very much. We'll see you Thank next week. you.